And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come, against, you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his, in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as David, or excuse me, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose boy this is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered him, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me move this out the way and then let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the truth, the truth of your word, truth that is too good to be true, truth that we can't make up, truth that we desperately need. And Father, it is of divine providence that with all the things going on, that this would be your word for us tonight, even though it was planned weeks and months ago. For you know your people, and you know your flock. And so we're asking, speak to us, and give us ears to hear. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is the story that you tell yourself every day? 
Maybe when you're walking from class to class, maybe you have your AirPods in, or when you're even driving in the car by yourself, we're, we're constantly telling ourselves something. And the story that we're using, the narrative that we're using to tell ourselves every single day is what shapes our life. But the question is, is that story, is that narrative that we're telling ourselves, is it true? No doubt all of you have been confronted with the things that are happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. The things that you watch on the news, the things that you see on social media, the music you listen to, the conversations you have with other people, those are all influencing the story you tell yourself. And maybe with things like in Ukraine and Russia right now, maybe you've been a little bit anxious about thinking about the what if. But as I've told several of you, nothing good ever happens in what if land. Nothing good ever happens there, but rather Satan only loves to lead us astray. But what God wants to do is he wants to show us what's true. He wants to show us what he's doing, even when it doesn't seem like he's doing anything. And that's what our text is talking to us about. Because the people of Israel had forgotten their God. But David hadn't. David had not forgotten his God. And because he didn't forget his God, he knew how to go forward. If you're going to see one thing in this text tonight, it's this. You are not David. Uh, That's not the way to read this. You and I are like the Israelites, or you and I are like Saul or, uh, or Eliab who are scared and who are trembling, and we need a greater David to come and defeat our giants. And That's what this is about. This story that happened 3,000 years ago, a real story, a real event, was meant to bolster your faith so that you can know that no matter what giants you face, It's not you that conquers them. It is God that conquers them. That's the truth we have here. We see, if we're going to see that God conquers our giants, we first off need to see that our enemy is too strong for us to conquer. So go back to verse 1. About 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, there were two armies that lined up across from each other. And they stood there representing their nations And one of the armies was confident, the other army trembled. The Philistines were threatening the livelihood of Israel. And this was not a what-if threat. This was a real threat right in front of them. And the people of Israel, the soldiers of Israel, as they are right there, they are being face-to-face with this thought. Is this the end? Is this where it stops? Is this finally where God's plan fails. And you have to imagine that moment. You have to imagine that as they're faced with the enemy, is the enemy going to prevail? You see, when the Philistines, they put forth their champion, look at verse four, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines, a champion, a man named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. They put forth their champion. And actually what's really cool is that the word champion here in the Hebrew literally means the man in between. So it's almost as if this side was an army and this side was an army. And one of the sides would put forth the man in between to fight for them, to represent them. 
And based on that person's success or failure would affect everyone else. Well, the Philistines put, just put ahead the man who is legendary in battlefield since his youth. Because this man is around nine feet tall. He descends from the people of Gath, of the Nephilim. See, I remember when I was in seventh grade, when I was playing travel basketball, and we were playing against some seventh and eighth graders, and they had two guys on their team who were both over six foot seven in the seventh and eighth grade. And what was crazier is that when we were playing them, none other than the giant of all basketball giant Shaq walked in to watch these two guys play. Those are big dudes. And I've seen my fair share of big dudes, and sometimes I've gotten hit by my fair share of big dudes, and it does not feel good. But this is a whole other category. This guy is about nine feet tall. And he stands with all this bulk, with all this strength, and there is no one like him on the battlefield. And it's interesting, because in the history of the people of Israel, they've been faced with giants before. Back in Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14, Israel had sent 12 spies into the promised land to scope it out. And if you remember this event, when they sent those 12 spies there, most of the spies came back and said that, well, we can't take the land because there's giants there, and these are these people. Well, if you remember what happened, because they looked at giants before they looked at their God, God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, we are just like them, and we too often fix our eyes on the giants rather than our God. You see, Tim Chester says this, in the wilderness, Israel was to rule over the giants, talking about in the book of Numbers. But Israel was defeated by their fear of the Nephilim giants and spent 40 years in the wilderness. Now, after 40 days, did you catch that, by the way? The Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness because they feared giants. And for the past 40 days here, a giant has been threatening them. What's going to happen? Goliath is not only a giant, but the way that the Hebrew text describes his armor is that it is a scale-like armor. It's like a snake. And no doubt that should remind you of what happened in Genesis 3.15. That there is the serpent. There is Satan himself. And he, no doubt, stands behind these threats. Because you remember the curse in Genesis 3.15, where God said, look, your line and the woman's line will always do battle. And here it is. Satan is always trying to destroy God's people. And here he is again, standing in the background behind Goliath as he is threatening God's people. And the threat seems so real. The man in between, who is snake-like, you see, we might not face literal giants today, but you all have your own giants. Maybe you have the giant of addiction, whatever addiction that is, or the giant of a season of depression, or the giant of shame that lingers and it feels like it is threatening you. Or frankly, maybe you have the giant of wondering what's going to happen in Ukraine or Russia, especially since you might go this summer. What about the giant of thinking, 
what in the world's going to happen when I graduate from college? I don't even have a job yet. Or let alone this, will I ever find someone to marry? We all face our different giants in different ways. You might not be facing a massive giant now, but you will later. And the question is, are we going to look more at our giants or are we going to look more at our God? It's easy to only look at our giants and to be intimidated and only listen to their threats. And what we often do when we're faced with these giants, we either try to ignore them or we try to run away from them or we live in fear or we try some other worldly strategy to conquer them. And watch what Goliath does next. Look at verse 10. Keep your Bible open. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Yes, I might try to read the text to make it come a little, you know, so you can understand it. So just bear with me. But can't you hear him screaming? Can't you hear him after he walks all the way across the valley and as he is ascending this hill to where Israel is? And he says, give me a man. Give me someone who would dare to fight me. That'd be intimidating. We've seen UFC or in boxing, you know, face-offs, and you just wait for the first man to budge. And then sometimes you see a celebrity fight between Jake Paul and whoever else, and it's just a ridiculous show. But this is real. This is the real thing. He hurls insults. He hurls shame. He hurls disgrace at Israel. He harasses them with his threats. And what the Philistine, what Goliath is trying to do is he's trying to change the narrative to retell the story of Israel. Because essentially behind his words is this. Where's the God of the Red Sea? Where's the God who has promised that he would defeat your enemies? Where's the God who has promised that he would crush the head of the serpent? That's the whisper that Satan is giving behind these threats. Satan's always been doing this. He's been doing this in Genesis 3, as we mentioned. He also does this in Daniel 7, whenever the horn shouts threats at God's people. He does this in Zechariah 3, whenever he stands to accuse Joshua the high priest. And he definitely does this throughout the whole book of Revelation as he threatens to destroy God's church. And that's happening right now. And you've seen it. You've seen how he can often use and manipulate worldly leaders to threaten that if the church will continue to hold on to biblical ethics, then we will threaten your demise. They'll put pastors in jail in Canada. They'll cut off your head in the Middle East. If you hold to the Bible, we will strike you. That's what Satan is always saying. And it's always evolving. We don't know what's going to happen next. But he is constantly standing behind these evil and corrupt powers as they threaten the church because he is after the destruction of God's people. That's a giant today. See, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters who are actually more in the eastern part of Ukraine because they're going to be facing it. You see, we even face this individually. We face this whenever we're being pummeled by that lingering shame after you struggle with sexual sin. We face this whenever our addiction to pornography is saying that I am too strong for you. 
We face this whenever our uncertainty about the future just overwhelms us where it seems like there's no way forward. But look at verse 11. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Literally, when it says they were dismayed, it means that they were filled with terror. They were shaking and shattering within. And isn't that how we often respond to these threats? We often respond to these threats as if it is inevitable that the giant will win. And that's what our hearts tell us. Our hearts often tell us that there's no way our desires can change, that our future is always in jeopardy, that our loneliness cannot be fixed, that our uncleanness cannot be washed away. And we begin to believe this story as if it's more true. We begin to believe these lies as if they're more inevitable than God's word. We've all been there. What are, what are the lies, what are the influences that you're hearing today that are contrary to God's word? That as if the moment that you are facing is somehow greater than the God who is with you in this very moment. That's how Saul lived. And that's how we live. The irony, the irony about this is that as Israel is facing a giant, do you know why they got Saul to be their king? They said they wanted a king like the nations. And they chose Saul because he was the tallest among them. So here would Saul be their would-be champion. And yet he's trembling and he's shuddering. We often think that obeying the worldly strategies can defeat our giants. But often when we adopt those worldly strategies, we realize that they themselves tremble. That's what happens when we forget God. There appears to be no hope. There appears to be no deliverance. There appears to be no salvation. The past is haunting and the future is daunting. We're like the hiker who recently got lost in the woods for 24 hours. And what he did is that he ignored phone calls to his cell phone, even though they were his would-be rescuers, because they were unknown numbers. I don't know how that works out. But here's a man who had the way in order to be delivered, to be rescued, and it's right there with him, and he ignored it. But you see the parallel, right? Because we do that all the time. We have God's Word with us. As a matter of fact, we often have it on our cell phone. But yet, more often, we're driven by these other false narratives rather than the true story. We need to remember that God is greater than our giants. Our enemies, they are too big for us. We're not strong enough. But then our Savior seems too weak to save us. Look at verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the chapter before, maybe if you, even, you just glance up in your Bible, you see in chapter 16, verse 13, where it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David that day forward. 
David was anointed to be the future king. And the king that God's people needed. Even though, yes, he would one day fail, but it was pointing to a greater David to come. But David was a man who was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He was a man who remembered his God. Like a compass that is always pointing north, David was always striving to remember his God. Nevertheless, David was merely a shepherd boy and most likely a teenager. He was not in a high and exalted position. And you see that in verse 15 where it says, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Here's how low David was. He wasn't even invited to be a soldier. How about that? You're not even invited to be a soldier, let alone go out and fight the champion. When David shows up on the scene, he shows up as a shepherd. He shows up with his shepherd outfit on and with his shepherd weapons and and bag with him. But here's one thing that the people of Israel did not remember. Did you know that shepherds are actually meant to picture and be symbolic of the office of king? The king was called to shepherd his people. And what is so interesting that as David shows up as the shepherd... And like a king who can tame the animals, who can slay his enemies, who can deliver his people and protect his people. Don't you see what's about to happen? This shepherd boy. He is going to be a truer king than Saul. And he's going to be a greater warrior than Goliath. Remember, Goliath is nothing but a serpent-like man. So what do you think David, the shepherd, will do to yet another animal? When you look at him, nevertheless, he looks weak. He's small. He's the youngest of his family. And you would look at someone like that and you would say, how in the world can someone like that stand a chance? And here's the thing. That's the point. The point all over the Bible is that God weakens men and women so that they have to depend on him so that the victory must come from him and not us. That's the point. It's almost like taking a very fragile light bulb. If we were to take one of these light bulbs from out of the ceiling, and what we would do is we would go outside and we would try to throw it onto the concrete, onto the cement. And what we would say is that I hope this very fragile light bulb could break open this concrete. That's ridiculous to think about, right? The concrete will shatter that light bulb every time. But David looks like merely a light bulb. And Goliath looks like concrete. And that's the way God likes it. So when you feel weak, you're in good hands. That's how God works. He loves to work through the opposite. He loves that whenever His people ask for strength, He makes them weak. He loves that whenever His people ask for assurance of salvation, He sometimes allows them to be anxious so that they'll cling to His promises. He loves it that whenever we ask for boldness, He often lets us get a little bit scared. Because then we depend. That's how God works. It's odd, it's weird, and we don't expect it, but it makes us look to Him for the victory. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8-9, through 9, as he's describing this very intense spiritual and physical pain, this thorn in the flesh. And he's talking about how it made him so weak, and he says, but he said to me, amidst this, even though God wouldn't take it away, my grace 
is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can't you just hear how antithetical that is to our enough culture? Constantly trying to be enough. Constantly trying to show people that you're strong enough, that you're wise enough, that you're smart enough, that you're connected enough, you're funny enough, you're good looking enough. God says weakness. That's when you're strong. It's interesting because there's a woman, and I've mentioned her before, named Johnny Erickson Tata. And she has a world-renowned ministry, and she's paralyzed from the neck down. Who could use someone like her? Who could use someone like a young college student at Wheaton whenever someone had asked him to pray at their chapel and he was so scared that he was having panic attacks, but who knew, who knew that that man would become John Piper? God loves to use weakness. That's how he builds his church. He loves to use light bulbs to break up concrete. Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God loves to use the tactics that look the least impressive, and that's why he uses David. And look at verse 23. As he talked with them, talking about how Goliath is, is threatening, uh, or excuse me, as David's talking with the Israelites, and then Goliath comes up, the champion, remember the man in between. Goliath by name, he came up out of the ranks of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words as before, and David heard. Here's the question. How's David going to react? Is he going to react like the rest of his brothers and his king? He hears what Goliath says, and instead of fear, rather he encourages. Look at verse 26. This is crazy. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this? uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Why does he say uncircumcised? He says this because circumcision was the covenant sign and seal. Excuse me, burping. Circumcision was the covenant sign and seal that said you belong to God's people and that you were grabbing hold of God's promises. But not Goliath. They had rejected Yahweh. They had rejected their God. And David is keeping his God in view and he is saying... Who does this guy say he is? Who in the world does this guy think he is? So he begins to encourage the people, but notice that he doesn't encourage the people by focusing on his own self-esteem. He puts the focus on God. But interestingly, even as David tries to encourage his brothers in the army, they reject him. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother... Notice this, his own family. When he heard David speak to the men, he got angry and his anger kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down and with whom have you left those sheep, those few sheep in the wilderness? You see, he begins, begins to get angry and, and he can't stand that David is trying to give them any hope. And don't we do the same thing whenever we're faced with our addictions and someone does try to give us hope and we say, no, 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 this is just the way it is. I can't change. 
I can't get out of this season. There's no way God can provide for me. Oftentimes we actually get angry whenever someone tries to give us hope. And David already shows us what Jesus would be like. Because in John 1 verse 11, it says that Jesus would come to his own, but his own people would not receive him. You see how this is lining up for the greater David to come. Watch what happens next. Look at verse 32. David comes to Saul. And David said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Y'all ready to get loose? Who's this kid think he is? What is this? Your servant will go and fight this guy. He's talking to the king. If someone's going to be the man between, if someone's going to be the champion, it's Saul. Who does David think he is? He's not even in the army. No, but he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul, he doesn't buy David's confidence. Even though David is saying that he will slay Goliath by the power of God, but when Saul looks on David, he looks and he sees weakness. And often, whenever we see weakness, we are like Saul, and what we try to do is we try to strengthen it up. That's what Saul does. You see that Saul will will put his armor on David. You see that in verses 38 and 39. Then Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And he even gave David his sword. And it says, and he tried to go in vain and it, uh, for, it, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So he took them off. They were only weighing them down. Can I say something very honestly? It is crazy when finite people try to make the infinite stronger. It is crazy when we look at the infinite and his ways and us with our finite minds and not only finite minds, but depraved minds. And we would dare to look at God and say, "Ah, we like our strategies better. Strategies for fighting sin. Strategies for evangelism. Strategies for building the church. Strategies for loving people. Strategies for promoting true unity amidst diversity. No, no, no. We like our ways better. Enough with yours. Yours are outdated. Yours are irrelevant. They may have worked 2,000 years ago, but these are modern times. That's crazy. But that's what we do. We do the same thing because we think that God's ways are merely a light bulb. And instead of waiting on God, instead of trusting God's ways, we try our own. And whenever we try to make our ways strong or to use our ways to strengthen God's ways, it's kind of like what happened when I was on a mission trip in Washington when we were ministering among the Yakima people and we were trying to make concrete as a base for this house. And this guy who was showing us how to mix concrete had been doing it for years and he knew what he was doing. And me, because I know so much more than this guy, clearly, um, because I'm clearly someone who just mixes concrete all the time. I told my students, hey, let's do it this way instead. I think this way will be better. Well, here's what turned out. If we would have kept doing it my way, then the house would have crumbled. How about them apples, right? 
You see, actually, that's very true because whenever we try to do things our way rather than listening to God's way, it often destroys the whole thing later. You see, we only mess things up whenever we try to help God out. We only get ourselves into jail whenever we try to free him up. But David has a trustworthy track record, doesn't he? Go back to verse 33. Saul says, you're not able to fight against this guy. You're but a youth. He's been fighting from his youth. Verse 34. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Whoo! Y'all ever been around someone with this much confidence? Former French Prime Minister George Clemenceau fought many duels against men, and on one occasion he surprised his friend who was going with him to this duel. And when they went to the Paris train station, uh... George Clemenceau only bought one ticket there, but not a return ticket. And his friend said, well, isn't that a little pessimistic? Clemenceau replied, not at all, because I always use my opponent's return ticket on the way home. Yeah. You know what David's doing? There's no armor. There's nothing else. There ain't going to be a return trip unless this guy dies. How about them apples? This better happen. Because remember what Goliath said, if your champion is killed by me, all of you will be enslaved to us. Can't you hear the threat of Egypt again? What do you think the people of Israel are thinking? Who in the world is this guy? What audacity would he have to think that he, of all people, in all ways, he could take down that giant? But what we must remember is that God is greater than our giants. Our enemy is too strong for us. And our Savior does appear to be too weak. But yet our deliverance is too good to be true. I love what happens And I hope this gives all of us chills. But look at verse 40. David took off the armor and then he took his staff in his hand. And he went down to the brook and he chose five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. What do you think was going on in David's mind as he would have gone up to that brook and hearing the babbling water flowing down and he would have been looking in there for five smooth stones getting ready to go face this guy. Robert O'Neill, who was a Navy SEAL, said that often when they would go on these missions that for most of their missions they would tend to only think about their responsibilities and not so much about death. They were highly skilled in what they did and they were good at what they did and they tended to stay focused, but then there came the mission to Abbottabad, Pakistan, when they went to go get Osama bin Laden. 
And on that long nighttime flight on those helicopters, that was almost two hours, as I believe I remember, they thought, they really thought it was a suicide mission. They really thought that was going to be, that, that was going to be the end, but it'd be worth it if they could get him. What's going on in David's mind here? I don't know. But I bet you he knows it's not a suicide mission. I bet you he knows, as he's been saying, that his God will win. You see, David has tamed other animals, and this is merely another animal, another serpent, needing to be tamed. What's interesting here, notice what happens. Goliath is the man in between. He's the champion. And as David would slowly but surely walk through maybe the parted crowd as they would be astonished at this little teenage boy who would walk there, he would slowly but surely as he would be walking five yards, ten yards, twenty yards away from the army, they would be realizing that's our champion. Is he going to be enough? That's what happened with Jesus. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, And he was being faced with the serpent, the true serpent, Satan, and all of his strategies and all of his army. And Satan was throwing everything at Jesus for Jesus just to disobey once. Imagine the weight of the world, of all the people in the Old Testament that he would say, and all the people who would come after him. And he knew, I'm the only one. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's why he sweat blood. He's the man in between. He alone has to go. And so David goes. Goliath's actually ticked off. You see it there in verse 41. The Philistine moved toward, uh, moved forward and came to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. And he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. In other words, it's contrasting David's uh, handsomeness, as it were, with Goliath, who has been fighting a lot of wars and a lot of battles since his youth, but David looked untested. Goliath's ticked off. He's, this isn't even going to break a sweat for him. Matter of fact, he's almost more angry than the best champion of Israel to come out. He's like, are you kidding me? This is a piece of cake. And isn't that what the world says to the church all the time? Can the church really prevail against a Goliath? David is short, skinny, weak, unarmored, and he comes in with a sling. Goliath's nine feet tall. He's a legend in the ancient Near East as a warrior. He's covered in armor from head to toe, and he has a sword that's probably almost about the size of David. Goliath says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And then he cursed David by his own gods. And he goes on to say, listen, how about this threat? Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. That'd be like an old school Twitter fight. And like our addictions, Goliath thinks that God's strategies are no match for him. Goliath doesn't even think he's going to sweat. But then there's David, and he's probably staring intently at his giant. Nothing's phasing him. And it's not because of him. It's because of his God. 
Can you imagine maybe the holy adrenaline that David has? Come on, man. I faced some, some pretty high adrenaline moments. Whew, man, it's about to go down. And here it is. And it better go down. He better go down. David says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you. Now watch this. He doesn't brag in himself or his weapons or his armor. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. God's who I come with. David's focus, David's strength, David's thoughts are on his God. You see, Goliath comes with his many threats and his God-forsakenness, but David comes with his God-honoring, God-focused, God-saturated words. And that's what Jesus had to do as well. You see, there are many times that Jesus and Satan had to face off, and he would face temptation his whole life, and yet he was without sin. But there were there's certain moments in the wilderness, in Gethsemane, and especially on the cross, where this was it. It wasn't just fighting one champion. It was fighting Satan and all hell's army. You want to know why there are so many demon possessions and demonic activities in the Gospels? It's not because that just was normal back in those times. Do you know why? It was a particular moment when hell was let loose to stop God's plan, to stop Jesus. He has to face the giant. If I'm an Israelite soldier, I'm I'm surely thinking... This is it. My friends and my family going into slavery. But look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew drew near to meet David, watch this, David ran, and he ran quickly. This ain't no forever 40. This is like get on your horse, almost tear your hamstrings, like we're getting up and we're going. Imagine this. Imagine as you're an Israelite soldier and you're watching this little kid approach this guy and he starts sprinting after him. This is going to be a bloodbath. He's literally going to be cut in half. That's what you're thinking. And then in one swift motion, he reaches in his bag and he grabs a stone and he puts it in his sling and he slings it probably about 100 miles per hour. Bam! He actually probably didn't hit Goliath in his head. He probably hit him in the shin. Now I know that might throw you for a loop. But actually the word in uh, in verse 6 when it's describing Goliath's armor and when it talks about his leg armor, which is particularly his shin armor, is the same Hebrew word that is used for forehead. And that word means front or it means shin. And you got to also think about this. Not only was it not for the Hebrew word that shows that it was most likely a shin, because remember, he would have armor plates here and he would have armor plates here, but it would have to be a little bit of a gap at his knee so he could bend his legs to walk. There was one spot. But if you would get hit in the head, most likely you would fall backwards rather than as the text says, he falls forward. When you get hit in the leg, most likely you would fall forward face down. This even reflects what's happening actually earlier in 1 Samuel uh, ver, uh, chapter 5 when the Philistines had, had uh, stolen the, covenant of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence and they put it in the same room as the Philistines' god, Dagon. And in that room, 
When the Ark of the Covenant is there, they go back in one morning and Dagon has fallen over face downward as if he is submitted to Yahweh. And they come back in and they put the statue of Dagon back up. And then all of a sudden what happens is the very next morning they come back again and Dagon again has fallen down face forward, but now his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. Don't you see what's about to happen? When Goliath gets hit by a 100 mile per hour you know, stone fastball, and it would just probably cut straight through his knees and he would buckle to the ground head first, he is submitted to David. We have a champion. But actually the Hebrew text says Goliath's not dead yet. You see that as David, and this is what the Hebrew text actually is more accurately saying, is that most likely when David would have had to run towards, look at verse 51, David ran and stood over the Philistine and he took his own sword and he drew it out of his sheath and he killed him. In other words, Goliath's probably still barely alive. And when David runs after him, he takes his own sword and he cuts off his head. When's the last time you were hearing in the Bible about a serpent-like person being, uh, taking a mortally wound, uh, wound to the head? You think about Genesis 3.15? Yeah, because that's what it's trying to say. And as David cut off the head of that serpent, so the greater David, Jesus Christ, when he is on the cross, he would go and he would cut off the head of the serpent. And imagine as Jesus is trying to finish out those last couple of minutes taking God's wrath for you and me. And imagine that he's almost there. Satan is almost defeated. God's wrath has almost been drank to the full. And imagine that he's saying just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Finish it off. And certainly that would make his cry in John 19 verse 30. It is finished. It would be amazing. Because that's when he cuts off Satan's head. Amen? Amen. That'll preach. Come on now. You see, what makes that incredible is because a Goliath is armored all the way up and it looks like that there's no weakness. But at the very point where his armor is supposed to be, where the world looks like it's most strong, that's where David attacks. Never underestimate God's ways. The world might look like it is too strong, but God's ways are stronger. God is greater than your giants. See, it's amazing and we can't go into it because we don't have enough time. But because of Jesus Christ's victory, like Israel with David, we get to run out after our enemies and slay them down. It's actually why it says in Romans 16 verse uh, 20, where it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. If you're a Christian and only if you're a Christian, you'll go out and slay dragons. They'll bite back and they'll hit you. But your God will win. That's why you need to look to him. So whatever giants you're facing, you are not David. But look to the greater David. And he will save you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that in this marvelous text that you would unveil to us the great glories of the gospel. That Jesus Christ truly is the David we need. And as we look to him amidst all of our, all of our seasons of life, may we focus on him trusting that, Lord, you will fight our battles. And so help us to look. And even when it seems like a light bulb, help us to trust that you crush the concrete. 
And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.